Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. The simplest way to describe day-to-day life is just being terrified of everything in the world. Like every person that you see is an enemy, no matter what their complexion is. Because if they're white and they're not in your crew, they're a traitor. They're a traitor to your people. They're complicit in the destruction of the white race. And actually it's the highest order of enemy because we would say like, well, you know, Jews and blacks and Mexicans, like they, they're just being what they are. But like white people, white man should be fighting for his race. And when they're not, they're a traitor. So everyone's an enemy. Everyone who doesn't look like me is immediately an enemy. Anyone who could even be construed as looking Jewish or whatever is an enemy. And then anyone who's not, who's just like a normal looking white guy, they're an enemy also for not being on my side. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. We are back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. And if this is your first time listening to the show, here is what you are in for today. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And my guest this week has dedicated his life to getting people out of hate groups. His name is Arno Michaelis. Arno is a former racist skinhead who decades ago was one of the founding members of the Northern Hammerskins, which was one of the largest skinhead groups in America. He has since converted, though, into a Buddhist, and he is now the author of two books, My Life After Hate is the first one. And then there's The Gift of Our Wounds, a Sikh and a former white supremacist find forgiveness after hate. Arno grew up in Wisconsin. He had loving parents. He was a part of a multicultural friend circle. He was a breakdancer. And yet he started indulging in alcoholism, which led him to rebellious behavior as a teenager. And then that led to white power antics, which was one of the most triggering and repulsive behaviors that he could think of displaying. And over the next several years, he started looking for fights. He was bullying people and he did what he describes as atrocious things to anyone who stood in his way. He openly wore white power t-shirts. He got Nazi tattoos and he was borderline suicidal and addicted to hate. His life changed though when he had an unlikely encounter with an elderly black woman in a McDonald's who told him, Arno, you're better than everything you're trying to represent. And that message that night, for some strange reason, it got through to him. And then later, he also had a daughter and the experience of being a new father 
led to more introspection. And then soon Arnold found himself at odds with his white supremacist beliefs. He was racked with guilt about all the things he had done. And then he went on a mission to help other skinheads see the truth about their errant ways. Cut to 2008. And Arno is campaigning door to door for none other than Barack Obama. He's actively working behind the scenes in counter violence extremism. And he's actually very effective at it because of his past. And as it turns out, his unique advantage as an activist is his ability to relate to the extremists. And when they see how someone like Arno was able to be converted, then they become much more likely to convert. So he found his purpose and we are going to unpack all of the backstory and figure out how it all happened. But before we get into that, I have a quick question for you. Have you ever meditated for 108 days in a row? If not, second question, are you up for the challenge? Because if you are, then I would like to invite you to join my 108-day meditation challenge. The 108-day challenge is a part of my Happiness Insiders online community, which teaches you practices like meditation, obviously, for increasing happiness within. And the way it works is you pay an entry fee, which is just 40 bucks, and that gives you access to a seven-day meditation kickstart video course, which will show you everything you need to meditate without guidance for at least 10 minutes a day. And you'll get daily prompts and accountability to help support you in your 108-day commitment. And by the end, not only will you become a daily meditator, but you'll also be a part of a larger community of other daily meditators. It's kind of like running a marathon with other meditators cheering you on each step of the way. And the best part is once you cross the finish line, your $40 entry fee will be credited back to you. We've got hundreds of people who've successfully gone through the challenge and it's designed to help you accomplish what feels like a marathon to many, which is finally becoming a daily meditator. So to get more information, go to thehappinessinsiders.com and let me help you take your inner practice to the next level. Now let's dive into the backstory of Arno Michaelis and find out how exactly he became a white power skinhead and more importantly, how he was able to change. Arno, it is a pleasure having you on the podcast Thank you so much for making the time. You and I actually met in person once, I believe three, maybe four years ago. It's kind of hard to gauge time now with the pandemic because that's like two years in between whatever was happening before then. I know you were on the road for like eight months out of the year. I was on the road permanently when I met you. I was actually living out of a backpack. So now I've been posted up in Mexico City for almost a year and uh, you've been... And you've been, I'm assuming you haven't been on the road very much over these last 18 months, right? Yeah, well, it's great to see you again, brother. It has been a long time. And yeah, the, the pandemic put a, a halt to my beloved travel. And that was the hardest part of it for me. And I'm really like downright giddy to start traveling again. I'm just uh, closing some engagements in Europe that I've been developing and I'll be uh, in Europe all of next May and the first two weeks of June. And I'm just like <laughs> planning the trip and looking at places to stay and booking flights. And, and I'm just delighted to, to get on the road again. And I've done a little bit of traveling in the States since New York City three times already. 
just came from New Orleans where a doc I was involved with was screening. And that's been about the extent of my travel since post-pandemic began. Beautiful. Well, I want to talk about your story. I understand right now you are a practicing Buddhist, and we're going to get to that later. But I do want to kick things off with, I don't normally ask esoteric questions in the beginning of these interviews, but I'm curious if you believe in destiny. And if so, how would you kind of define destiny? Congratulations, first of all, that's the question I've never been asked, which is, (laughs) that's a feat in itself. I think I'm just too much of a being in motion to really like put a lot of energy into the idea of destiny. I would say the simple answer is no. In a universe where everything is in constant motion, to say that something is kind of for fated, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. At the same time, I've gone through so many things in my life and I've been so blessed that, you know, that phrase, the planets have aligned is comes into play in, in many descriptions. And, and so in that sense, I, I, I'm right where I should be right now. And I feel good about where I'm going. So I, I don't know if, if, how that bears on, on the answer. I also am really mindful that, that my every thought and action is going to change the direction that I'm going and change the way I interact with, with the rest of the universe. And, and so I'm very thoughtful about the, I, I try to be, <laughs> I try to right. be thoughtful about my, my thoughts and actions and, and where they're going to take me. I didn't have any agenda in mind by asking you that question. Well, I did have a little bit of an agenda, but right. I was just curious how you thought about it. Now we're going to put that on the shelf and we'll get back to that later on in the interview. <laughs> right on. That's perfect. I'm stoked. Okay. All right. So you grew up in Milwaukee and you've described your childhood as being an idyllic one in several interviews. So thinking back to, well, first of all, where does Arno come from? Is that short for something or is that your whole name? No, I, I'm actually Arno R. Michaelis the fourth. Mm-hmm. I, I come from a long line of Arnos. And, is it uh, like a Scottish or Viking name? Or it, where, where in is... my case, it's uh, it's Prussian. Prussian. Yeah, my my dad's entire side of the family like dates back to OG Prussia, which is at one time it encompassed everything that's now like Germany, Austria, Poland, mm-hmm. Ukraine, and they kind of just like warred themselves out of existence. And according to family legend, the, the Michaelis family at one point were like feudal lords in Russia, or in Prussia, excuse me. I have a, a daughter, otherwise there'd be an Arno V. <laughs> and there's a lot and of her people name who is... would say that, like, the, it's the, I don't know if the world can handle another Arno, so I think my daughter is the best thing I could do. <laughs> right. And my daughter's amazing. She's the light of my life, and I think she's a, a real gift to the to the world did you have a nickname growing up or did your parents call you arno this is very like unofficial is just something i noticed growing up but typically you're called arnie as a as a child and then when you get to be an adult more people start calling you arno right but like at the same time my my dad my aunt still calls my dad arnie okay But like, as we're kind of publicly known, there's this kind of this unofficial shift to Arno when you become an adult. 
or maybe you were called Junior, or there was Big Arnie and Little Arnie, or something like that. There was in, in Big house. and Little, yeah. yeah. Uh, junior, yeah. no, because I was the fourth. Okay, that's right. So, and, and growing up, my grandpa Arnold II was around, and I, I recall a family reunion when I was a kid where my grandpa's cousin Arno and his son Arno were there. So counting my dad and I, that made for five Arnos at the <laughs> at the party. <laughs> well, that means you guys have good genes because you stick around for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 despite our bef- best efforts at times. Thinking back to little Arnie, do you remember having a favorite toy or activity as a child? I had a few of them. The first one to come to mind was Legos. I was super into Legos and my whole bedroom would be a big giant Lego city. But I also like, it's crazy just to think of technology and how it has advanced since then. But when I was a little kid, there was this little... I don't know if you remember these. They're, they're, it was about this tall. It was called 2XL. And it was like a, it was a little robot-shaped thing, and it had this kind of – and you put an 8-track cassette in there, and then it would ask you questions, and you'd, like, press buttons to for the answers, which would, like, basically, like, jump you around the tape and the – oh, you got that right or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I started playing music. Eight tracks in there also. So yeah, the, the 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 fact that two XL could play music and like do trivia stuff and, and educational stuff made it a real favorite toy of mine. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water. TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What was the vibe like in your house? And what I'm really asking is, I'm not sure if you were in a religious family, but were there any philosophies that your parents would tell you and your little brother while you guys were were growing up? Like you got to work hard or you got to make sure you stay connected with the right people or any, anything like that? My parents are, are very much uh, an opposite attract kind of situation. My mom 
and, and all like just jumping with contradictions as, as we all are when, you know, under close examination, but my mom was a quintessential child of the sixties, like super progressive, super multicultural, super liberal, really just kind of loved everyone and everything very like open spiritually to this day we have christian art in our house we have the thing jewish people put on the door we have like hindu artwork some muslim artwork my mom's just into like all forms of human spirituality and despite all this she was attracted to my dad not really because she loved him but because he was tall and smart and she wanted to have tall smart sons (laughs) so here's this very like progressive hippie girl like actually you know with like the Liebenstrom program of Nazis in her mind where like I I need strong genetics in in a partner and my father is very very conservative I I describe him as a, a capitalist fundamentalist in that he believes that there's there's nothing in this world that can't be fixed by the invisible hand of the market if you just get the damn government out of the way. <laughs> as, as, as barbaric as that can sound to some people, he he really believes that and he has his whole life from a, a place of compassion and, and care. And he, he really believes that like everyone is going to be so much better off if you just kind of let these market forces do their things. And so he, he doesn't, he, he feels that way from like an altruistic sense. And on top of that, my dad is, both my mom and dad are very smart. And my, my dad is just one of the, the smartest people I've ever met in my life, which makes me really scratch my head at his political opinion sometimes. But despite that, he, he has like this aura of intelligence that is pretty palpable to anyone who meets him. Hmm. And so I, I grew up as the, the child of those two. And it was pretty much like anything goes in my house from day one. And a lot of that was catalyzed just by who I was. My, my parents have like this urban mythology about my childhood where my dad, who's, who's an amazing storyteller, and I think that's where I get my love of storytelling from. But my dad's also a master of hyperbole. And he would say things like, yeah, when Ernie was six months old, we found him 80 feet up in a tree in the backyard and we had to get the fire department to come and get him down. And he actually climbed down and started driving the fire truck around the block. And I, I was probably like two years old and 10 feet up in the tree and there wasn't the fire department involved. But uh, <laughs> I, I was a, a wild and crazy kid to the point where my parents took me to the pediatrician and said, what's wrong with this kid? And my pediatrician, God bless him, said, well, he's just such a gifted genius that he needs to explore and he needs to experience things and you should just let him be a gifted genius. And and my parents kind of interpreted that as just letting me run amok. And that was what I did for for most of my childhood. And my, my brother was the polar opposite. The best way to describe it is that my first word spoken sometime long before year one was no. And I, I, I would just go around and be like, no, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm imposing my will on everything using the word no and a, a whole language of my own that I had concocted. And my brother didn't make a peep until he was two years old, at which point his first words were a perfectly articulated, thank you. <laughs> 
And my parents actually thought something was wrong with him because he wasn't just like climbing the walls crazy like I was. But, but actually, I think my brother's a, a bit smarter than I am. He's certainly a lot more thoughtful. Uh, he was as a kid. And so that that was the environment I grew up in. And I would call it idyllic for the most part. My dad's alcoholism was really the only wrench in, in the works there. And that manifested itself, again, not in the usual ways. People would think like, oh, your dad was abusive. He, he, he was violent. And I always say my dad wasn't a mean drunk. He was a fun drunk. And when dad was drunk, like we were going to shoot pistols in the basement in his basement pistol range and, and shoot off fireworks in the backyard all night, which for a little boy was a lot of fun. <laughs> it, was, it was not fun for my mom, who had to work two jobs at times to, to keep our household running. And, and we were living pretty far beyond our means. We had a big house, big yard in the suburbs, and my dad really wasn't because he was partying all the time was, was not pulling the weight that he should have to support a household like ours. And, and it put a ton of stress on my mom. Paint the picture of your friend circle. I know you hung out with pretty multicultural friends and you were into, you're into judo and things like that. So who were your friends and what was your role within that circle? Were you the leader? Were you the instigator? Were you the follower? Like who, who are you? As far back as I can remember, like I always wanted to have a gang. I, I wanted a gang. Like whatever me and my friends were, we were like some kind of gang. And I think my, my first gang was when I was a kid, and this has since been retired, a lot like the names of pro football teams and whatnot. But there was kind of a counterpart to Cub Scouts called Indian Guides. And it was everyone but actual indigenous native americans involved in it but it, it was like dads and their sons and my two best friends in indian guides were a jewish kid named dean kaplan and his dad stan was a buddy of my my dad's and they'd sit around drinking while we were doing our indian guides things and larry heisel jr whose father larry heisel played for the milwaukee brewers and larry was afro-american and we had you know five, six other kids in, in the Indian Guides group. And we, we always had a good time doing little activities and, you know, going on field trips and things like that. I don't recall me, like, directing Indian Guides off the rails too much. It was probably because all the dads were, like, there <laughs> when Indian Guides was happening. But at school, it would quickly change. I, one of my biggest, like, behavior incidents as a kid was there was a kid on the bus who I bullied and I got like kind of bored of just bullying him myself. So one day I got like six other kids on the bus to really beat this kid badly. And when we got to school, the principal was like letting us all have it and really like yelling at everybody, but really focusing on me. And as this was happening, this gifted genius light bulb went off because everyone's telling me what a gifted genius I was my whole childhood. And it was that I, I looked at these other kids as the principal was yelling at us and I could see how terrified they were of her. And I was just like, why are they terrified of her? And I, I just kind of cut her off and I said, you know, all these other kids are afraid of you, but I'm not. So there's like, there's nothing you can do to me. And <laughs> she was just livid. And, and 
she called my parents and yelled at them. And, and I also recall that night, my dad down in the basement in his gun room, which was, you know, just full of guns. And it was kind of where he hung out and he was on the phone with his best friend, Roger, who he'd known since childhood. And he was kind of chuckling, telling Roger how, how I had the principal so upset. His exact words was like, yeah, all Arnie's sure got that uh, Shirley McCurdy up a tree. And, and, and I I was kind of like, yeah, I got her up a tree. And, and, and my dad and I are cut from the same cloth. He, he was, uh, he made trouble when he was a kid. One of my, my father's favorite stories is that he was raised Lutheran. And when he was in sixth grade, he, he was going to Sunday school. And there was a young preacher just for, straight out of the seminary. And my dad would like question him about Christianity after Sunday school. And, and rather than the, the preacher, like getting through to my dad about the, the words of Jesus Christ, my dad got this young preacher to quit <laughs> and like not be a, a Christian anymore just because he, he had his questioning of, of it all was so deep that the, the preacher was like, I can't even, this changes everything. So uh, that's, you know, it kind of runs in the family. I've read about you getting beat up by these 20 guys and then cutting off your, your rat tail which was like sort of your trademark as a break dancer. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and your homies just kind of stood there and watched it. Nobody stepped in. How pivotal of a moment was that for you in sort of your own transformation to becoming more of a bully and, you know, hurt people, hurt people and that kind of thing? It was definitely a case of what comes around goes around. I think even as it was happening and even as traumatized as I was, I knew that I, I had this coming because of all the kids I had hurt and harassed leading up to that. This happened in sixth grade. Is that uh, why they attacked you? Because they, they knew you were bullying other kids? Or were you just a random victim? I, I think the reason why that particular attack happened is that I had my own little breakdancing crew. And of course, we looked at ourselves like a street gang. Mm -hmm. And it was me and like, probably all of the Afro-American kids who went to our school, which is not a whole lot of them. <laughs> I grew up in a pretty uh, Euro-American suburb. But we would, like, go into the city on weekends and go to, like, this Starlight Roll Arena that was just on the border of the inner city. And, and these were, like, real kids from the inner city. They weren't, like, suburban kids. They were inner city kids. And we would, like, felt we, we were, like, tough hanging out there. And we'd go do our breakdance battles. And, and, and really, it was it was a magical thing to be a part of. It was just such a, a different world than this very sterile suburb I had grown up in. But the guys who jumped me to cut my tail off were all, like, the jock kids. And I knew all these guys and because I was a, I, I, while I find myself in these little clicks here and there, I was always able to kind of navigate all of them. I played football since I was a little kid and I wrestled and I, I was always like enough of a jock to be cool with all the jock kids. But when the breakdancing thing came along, I think the jocks were kind of jealous of me because I was one of the, these few break dancers and like the girls noticed me and I would get all this attention from them. And, and I knew it too. And I walked around like, yeah, you know, just strutting it. And I think their rationale for cutting my tail off was just, Oh, we, you know, this kid needs to be taken down a notch and you know, we're, we're the ones who are going to do it. 
And when that happened, I, I was, it was one of the, the, the greatest traumas of my childhood. And I was very hurt and disappointed that my, the guys in my breakdancing crew really did just kind of sit there and watch it happen. As it happened, they didn't make any effort to, you know, get my back and that hurt. But I, I don't think I really associated that with the racial thing at the time. It did kind of mark the end of my breakdancing era. <laughs> and and I, I, I really looked at it more on like an individual level of just like, yeah, you guys suck. You know, you let me down. But I looked at it as the individual guys rather than trying to like attach a, a racial meaning to it at the time. What did you see yourself becoming when you when you grew up around that age, uh, pre-teens, as far as work, or how did you view success in the world at that time in your life? I had three ambitions. One was to be a professional football player. The for the Packers, was, of course. Uh, for the Packers, yep. <laughs> the other was to be a rock star. And the third was to be a Playboy photographer. <laughs> Not very subtle with those with those ambitions. Not at all. It's all pretty balls <laughs> out. My my this is another thing that a casual observer would think was super weird, but for me, this is just normal in my childhood. So my dad loved Playboy magazine like any self-respecting dad would. Exactly. And my mom, rather than like being all prim and proper about it, my mom was this like freewheeling artist. And and she actually my mom was to this day is constantly in her throughout her entire life is creating, creating, creating. And my mom would do like really striking nude sculptures of women and, and drawings. And then she liked Playboy and she read it also. And my parents just had it like sitting out on the coffee table rather than like hidden away somewhere. And of course, me and my friends would always be trying to like sneak one out into the woods where we could get a good look without parents breathing down our neck. And, and when we'd get caught doing that, my mom would be like, you don't have to sneak around. Like, just go ahead and look at it if you want to look at it. And that, and that was just all the weirder. <laughs> like, no, I want to I'm not gonna sit here looking at naked women with my mom. Like, I want to go do this on my own. So I was very dialed into Playboy growing up. And I, of course, I'm dialed in for the centerfold, but I, I did actually read it too. And I, <laughs> I liked a lot of the fiction that was in it, the, the commentary and the cartoons, any, those totally. Shel Silverstein cartoons. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And as any uh, self-respecting Playboy aficionado will know, <laughs> Their prime photographer was a guy named Arnie Freitag. And it was spelled A-R-N-Y, I believe. It's how he spelled his first name. But I was just like, dude, his name's even Arnie. <laughs> I was like, that would, that would be the best job ever. It's just like, take pictures of naked chicks. So that, that, that was my, my third goal as a kid. And, and I, I really believe that all three of those goals are very achievable. And it was funny because my mom, the liberal freewheeling one, was the one who'd be like, yeah, that's never going to happen. Like, you better study start in school and become a doctor or a lawyer or something. And my dad, of course, he'd be like, oh, sure. Yeah, if you want to be a rock star, be a rock star. You will be. Be a playboy photographer. Like, he, he was the one saying, you know, who said, yeah, you can make it happen. Like, don't don't give up on that. I was like, Okay. 
So th- those are my, my three ambitions. When it comes to the 700 club, were you breaking and entering and being violent and drinking alcohol before you started being associated with that? And then that became the 700 club or was it the opposite? So another big milestone in my teenage years is when I started drinking myself at age 14. And up until 14, like I'm already violent, I'm already wild, I'm already antisocial. Like there's this little fire that's always been smoldering and it's kind of going and and alcohol is just a big giant can of gasoline on that fire. So it, it just took everything to another level. And I was originally super into the punk scene. And to me, punk was about like breaking shit and pissing people off and, and just lashing out. And punk's different things and different people. There's a lot of punks even back then. There, there was like kind of a subgenre of punks that we called the peace punks. And they were like really activist oriented. At the time, there was some kind of accusation against Coors Brewery that they had unfair hiring practices. And so the peace punks would all be like at punk shows handing out flyers going boycott Coors don't drink Coors they're racist and like I didn't care one way or another who Coors did or didn't hire but I hated the peace punks because to me punk is about breaking stuff and not caring and not all this activism nonsense so I would like drink Coors beer just to piss them off actually I had a Coors hat that was like kind of hey what's up one of Coors dude like just that kind of contrarianism was like who I was, but pre 700 club days. And and it was also then that I started like disappearing for a minute or two. And then like, I I'd disappear on a Saturday night and then I'd not come back till the next day. And my parents would be like, where the hell were you? We didn't know if you were alive or dead. Oh my God. And I'm like, whatever. I just went down to Racine. I was hanging out with my punk homies. And I, I, I hung out with like punk rockers who were, late teens, early twenties, sometimes up to their thirties. And like, they would be squatting in the basement of some biker's house and I'd go stay there for the night or whatever. And, and as I, I started getting farther and farther to home, that's when I'm, we're breaking into places. We're stealing alcohol. We're stealing cigarettes. We're getting in fights on the street. Like I was already like very immersed in all that stuff before the 700 club came around. What was the significance of the 700 Club? Yeah, so I won't say the full address because people actually still live there and I want to respect their their privacy, but 700 was the address of the house. Hmm. And my impetus for moving in there was the summer after sophomore year of high school. My parents and my younger brother all went out to Washington State to visit my maternal grandfather. And they asked me if I wanted to go. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not going. And, and I said, actually, I, I'm going on tour with, with this punk band. I, I organized a tour for them. And, and I, I did organize this like half-assed punk tour for my buddy's bands, which was called NOD. Originally meant nuclear overdose, but we'd also like laugh and say it meant not on drugs when we all did tons of drugs and drank <laughs> profusely. And so I told my parents I wasn't going to be around myself, and that's why I'm not going to Washington with them. So they all went off to Washington. I, the tour I had organized, like our Chicago gig fell through. We were supposed to have a gig in Indianapolis. I was dating a girl who lived in Indianapolis. 
she was a, a Latina. She lived with by her, her with her single parent, her single mom, and somehow this like van load of thirteen scummy punk rockers ends up at this poor woman's house, and she didn't speak English. She'd just be like yelling at us every day to leave in Spanish, and then, like girlfriend be like, "No, no, it's fine. <laughs> you guys can stay here. Don't worry about it." We got all the shows we had fell through. And we ended up getting stranded in Indianapolis. We actually made a version of Hotel California, but instead of that, it was uh, the state of Indiana. So, welcome to the state of Indiana. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. And we, we ended up waiting until some guy's dad wired us gas money to get home. And as we're headed home, I'm like, dude, let's all go to my house. Like, my parents are gone. So this entire entourage ended up at my parents' nice house and we just absolutely tore it down. Everything that could be broken was broken. I still feel bad about doing it. My my younger brother is still angry at me about it. My dad and mom have like finally got over it a little bit, but basically the way it shook down was I had lost track of time and when my parents were coming back. And there was one morning where my mom's friend wakes me up and I'm kind of scrambling in this pile of beer cans and I got some naked girl next to me. And she's like, Arnie, what have you done to this house? You better start cleaning because your parents are getting home tomorrow. And I kind of like, her name was Cindy. And I I convinced Cindy that I was going to clean enough for her to leave. And then as soon as she left, I'm like, we got to get the hell out of here. And we all just like disappeared. And I, and I, I was gone for a month after that. My parents, it took them that long to find me. And it, it didn't hit me what I put them through until I was a parent. And I was at uh, Six Flags with my 12 year old daughter and she was being a 12 year old and she just kind of disappeared for like an hour. And I lost my mind, like thinking of every horrible thing that could happen to her. And I finally find her an hour later sitting there like, Meh. and I was just like, Oh, and I, I was not even mad at her. I was like, Oh, I'm so glad you're here and you're okay. And, and then I, I, after that, the, after the emotional dust settled, I was kind of like, that sucked, didn't it? Yeah. You put your mom through that for a month. A, a month. Imagine that hour of hell you just experienced and extend it to a month. And that's what you put your mom through. And and my dad. And my mom finally tracked me down in Racine. This like a little Rust Belt town between Milwaukee and Chicago where a lot of the punk rockers I knew were. And she came pick me up. And again, she wasn't didn't yell at me. She just hugged me and was glad I was still alive. And on the way back, I'm just like, I'm not going back to school. I got a bunch of friends in Milwaukee who are getting a house and I'm going to move in with them. And that's the way it is. And by this time they had just, they had completely lost control of me. And my mom's just like, okay, well I'll buy you groceries or whatever. Like she was offering to like, just help me get by and and whatever poor decision I was making. So that, that, that house was what became the 700 club. And when I initially moved in there, it was me and like four or five of my punk rock buddies. And then as I started getting in the whole skinhead thing and I'd get my skinhead buddies to come by more often, like we literally drove all the punk rockers out of the house and replaced them with skinheads until it was like this skinhead war den within the space of a month or two. 
What was your first exposure to the world of skinheads and white power? Uh, I was music. I was sitting outside a punk show. I, I had friends who were like shaving their heads. There's a movie called Suburbia. They were kind of a cult film from the 80s about punk rockers. And, and I haven't seen it in forever. I'd, I'd love to watch it again now. But in Suburbia, it was basically about a bunch of punk rockers who drink and get in fights and <laughs> pretty much exactly what I was doing. But in that movie, there was a skinhead guy who had his head shaved and he wore a, a flight jacket and he had big boots on and he was really tough and he was like beating people up. And I, and I was like, yeah, that's, I like that. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do that too. And so I started shaving, I shaved off my Mohawk and I got a shaved head and I'm, it just kind of felt good, but it, it didn't have any like ideological underpinnings at the time. And the other thing that attracted me to the whole skinhead look was at the time in New York city, there was kind of like a New York brand of punk called New York Hardcore. Bands like the Cro-Mags, Agnostic Front, and, and I, I love those bands. And, and they, those guys were all like, yeah, we're skinheads. And they weren't racist by any stretch, but they were kind of nationalist. They were kind of like, yeah, we're American skinheads. And that attracted me, because, again, because the Peace Punks hated it. The peace pumps were very like, you know, they burned the American flag. And again, I didn't give a shit one way or another. Like I, I didn't have strong feelings about America, but if wearing an American flag is going to ruin the peace pumps day, then that's what I'm going to do. And so that's who I was when a friend of mine, a girl who was like OG punk rock scene queen, she was driving a tour bus for a punk band called Cheetah Chrome Motherfuckers. And she got the bus all the way to New York City. And by the time they got there, she said, like, these guys were, like, so filthy and their hygiene was so poor that she just, like, bailed on the whole tour. She's like, I can't be in this this band with you guys anymore. You're disgusting. And, And she just kind of started kicking it in New York City. And that's where she met some, like, New York skinheads. You know, they had like shined boots and clean clothes and Fred Perry shirts. And she kind of just like, oh, I like this like clean, sharp look. And and she kind of got into that look herself. And on the way back from New York, she stopped in Chicago where she met a group called the Chicago Area Skinheads, which were, to my knowledge, like the first white power skinhead crew in the United States. And it's important to, to point out that the whole skinhead counterculture arose in the late 1960s in the UK and they were typically all like football hooligans. They'd go to like soccer games and fight the opposing fans, but they listened to reggae and among them, they counted like Pakistani immigrants and immigrants from the West Indies. So it wasn't a racial thing to begin with, but towards the late seventies, there's a fascist group in the UK called the national front. And in the, the, the white skinheads, they saw the potential for like a kind of brown shirt. So they, and and the other thing about skinheads is like skinheads were working class as opposed to like the flashy mods, like the who or the Rolling Stones, who got these fancy clothes and scooters and whatnot. Like the skinheads were poor and they're on the dole. And, And so the national front would come in there and say, Hey, the reason why you're poor is because of this Pakistani immigrant. Like he's not your friend. He's a problem. And that's where the whole offshoot, of white power skinheads began. And so to this day, I am intentional about that because when people think skinhead Nazi, 
it's really not historically accurate to that counterculture. And of course, we totally turned that around. According to us back then, if you weren't a Nazi, you weren't a real skinhead. And this is what the Chicago area skinheads imparted on my friend Jane. And she came back up to Milwaukee with like a battered 50th generation tape of a, a British skinhead band called Screwdriver. And that was my first exposure to white nationalism. The record that she played for me was called Hail the New Dawn. And it started out with this real like chugging guitar fading in. And it's like, tick -a -tick -a -tick -a -tick -a and you're here. I'm like, hail, hail, hail. These like hails and chants are getting louder and louder. And then the, the lead singer, Ian Stewart, who died in a drunk driving accident in the early 2000s, early 90s, actually. And they made it sound like he was a big martyr. But the guy was really magnetic. And the, the music was, it, it just made like the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm like, where has this been all my life? And, and again, the biggest attraction to me was that it was so repulsive to civil society. It wasn't like, hey, I'm white and I'm looking for other white people so I can hate everybody else. It's like, no, I'm just looking for the best way, the most effective way to piss off the most people the most at the same time. And when somebody like says, hey, this swastika is a symbol of your people. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And it really, really pisses people off. And that was my attraction to it. That, that's what got me into it at the beginning. When you would hear these references to hell and swastikas and things like this, Nazis, would you go and cross-reference and do your own research? Or were you just kind of believe whatever they were telling you and kind of get indoctrinated, allow yourself to become indoctrinated into this culture? Well, a lot of the, the attraction to it, and this is like exponentially truer today with social media and algorithms mm -hmm. creating these bubbles, but it's basically like I... I Again, I, I grew up with Jewish friends. I went through a bunch of bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs when I was in sixth grade. Like, and I had a lot of fun too. Like, <laughs> this is awesome. I had an English teacher my freshman year of high school who was a Jewish man, and, and our entire year was like Holocaust studies. We read like Night by Eli Wiesel and Anne Frank's Diary. And and again, I just like I, I got defensive about it. I'm like, hey, I'm German, but like my ancestors were all here already when this shit happened. So like, why, why do I got to hear about this? Like, why am I being blamed for this? And then I again, I, I noticed that it's something I can poke at and really upset this guy. And I, I like I made my English teacher cry. I, I said horrible things to him. Like, oh, I wish they would have got you too. Like, oh, you know, I wish they would have got six million more. And and again, it wasn't because I had any logical, not that there is a logical reason, but it wasn't like, a, oh, I, Jews are bad because of this. I'm like, no, this this hurts him. This is a good way for me to bully him. It, it's a way I can have power over him. And so when I get into white nationalism and they say, yeah, actually, the Holocaust didn't happen. Like Hitler was a great man who fought for our people. And they don't want you to know that. They don't want us to talk about that. So now there's this like forbidden nature of it where you think that you're, you're partial to knowledge that is only known by you and the select few. And again, it's I, ironically nowadays of many ironic things, 
I'm a huge fan of uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens and all sorts mm-hmm. of other great books, who's a, a gay Israeli anthropologist. And he said something that's real profound about it, conspiracy theories and super simple. He's like, people like conspiracy theories because they don't like to feel stupid. So when there's some really crazy, complex situation in the world and you can't even begin to get your head around it, but then a conspiracy theory is presented to you with this really simple answer and a simple answer that makes you feel like you're smart, like you know something that other people don't, it's incredibly attractive to you. And and for me, it wasn't necessarily that I, I wanted to feel smart because everybody told me how smart I was my whole life, but it, there was definitely a, an attraction to it. And like, I know, I know the lies about the Holocaust. And, and to this day, if you have the misfortune of talking to any Holocaust denier, you'll see that coming across very plainly. That was really the dynamic of, of how it happened. It was more like the emotional dynamics of it that were important to me and of course this is all like monday morning psychoanalysis at the time i didn't know you know aware of what was happening but looking back i think that's what it was it was it was way more about emotions and my failure to healthily process the trauma i had experienced as a kid than it was about like the nuts and bolts of the ideology itself so the next several years were full of fights concussions, beating people up, alcohol, trying to kill yourself. I think your mom told you you were one sixteenth native American. And, and what did you, how did you handle that? I did. That was the, that was Thanksgiving of 1989. So Mm -hmm. at that point I got involved in in white national in 1987. And then by Thanksgiving 89, I had the first of a string of skinhead girl girlfriends. Her and I show up to our family Thanksgiving, like good and drunk. And typically at our Thanksgivings, the only people who weren't good and drunk were my grandma, Jerry, and my mom. Everybody else is just rip-roaring wasted, all the other adults. And so now I'm an adult and I, I was 18 at the time and I'm, I'm rip-roaring drunk also. And as soon as I sit down at the table, I'm all like, oh, the white race and the Jews and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just going on about this. And at Thanksgiving. <laughs> At Thanksgiving. Yep. Good. And my dad's kind of like, oh, come on, Arnie. You know, he's just kind of poo-pooing it. And and that, you know, didn't phase me at all. But then my mom goes, Well, Mr. Nazi, did you know that you're one sixteenth Native American? Because your great grandpa Bordeaux was a French Canadian or Acadian, and, and he has, you know, native people, Indian blood, and so do you. And I was like, that's not true. You, you, that, that, you know, I, I freaked out. I, I absolutely blew up when stomping out of Thanksgiving. I went back to this hovel. This, this, we were like on our third skinhead hovel by this point after the 700 Club. And I locked myself in the bedroom that my girlfriend and I shared. I had a case of returnable beer bottles. And the first thing I did was I wrote a letter to Tom Metzger who at the time was like the big honcho in, in the U.S. white nationalist scene. And I, I said, you know, I, I'm so ashamed. And, I, you know, my mom said I'm not the pure-blooded Aryan white man. And, I, you know, I, I think I'm just going to end it all because I don't think I have anything to live for if I don't have my people. And, and I, I had really, like, gotten myself so wrapped up in this identity at this point that I, I believe that. And I... 
drank until I, I got to the point where I, I broke one of the bottles and I just started carving up my wrist with it. And that was the last thing I remember. Apparently what happened was my girlfriend like kicked the door in and not to give advice about like how to slit your wrist properly, but a beer bottle is not the best way to do it. Fortunately, otherwise we would be here talking about it right now, but I was bleeding pretty good. And, and my girlfriend came in there and fortunately for me, skinhead girls aren't squeamish at the sight of blood. And most of them do basic first aid that you put pressure on a bleeding wound. And that's what my girlfriend did until the bleeding stopped. And I woke up the next day with a really wicked hangover and this huge gash in my, my wrist. And that was the, the first time that I actually attempted suicide during that seven year span. I also slipped my wrist again and came much closer to, to dying in 1992, a week after my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. And, and her mother was the last skinhead girl I had dated. And that all happened because a, a week after my daughter was born, my younger brother and I came home at bar time at 2 a.m. in Wisconsin. And I was like covered with someone else's blood. And Cassandra, my my baby mama, said, you're a piece of shit. Like you're a father and you can't do this stuff now. And she, and she was understandably very upset. And she just tore into me and I had nothing to say in my defense other than to take a, a big combat dagger that I had that was a big knife about this big that was sharp enough to shave with. And I just said, is this what you want then? And I went, boom, and I just about like took my left hand off. And that that was a, a lot closer to death. Again, my girlfriend saved my life and called the EMTs and I remember briefly coming too long enough to swing at the EMT with my right hand. And he's like, I'm trying to save your life, asshole. <laughs> and then the next thing I do is I, I woke up in ICU uh, surrounded by my family and my girlfriend and, and some of my closer friends in the crew, too, who are all just like really pissed at me. And I remember being in the mental health unit as is mandatory for suicide attempts. And I was in there for three days. And this is back when you could smoke in those places still. And I was smoking. And I just remember sitting there smoking, being like, these people are nuts. <laughs> like, I don't belong in here. And, and, and my psychiatrist who treated me said, like, yeah, I don't think you have any diagnosable mental health issues. But, like, this is alcohol psychosis. And, and it, I'm going to – I remember them saying, like, it, I, I regret that I can't order treatment for you. But I, all I can do is strongly suggest it. And so I, I did quit drinking for a month after that. And a month later was my birthday. And, and my very well-meaning girlfriend said, oh, you can just have one beer. Like, it'll be okay. And, and I started drinking again and drank profusely for another decade after that. But that was the second official suicide attempt. And, and I always say it, it could definitely be argued that that entire seven-year span was an ongoing suicide attempt. Because I, I had absolutely zero regard for my safety. There were times like we'd be in the inner city of Milwaukee getting in these really racially charged confrontations with people and guns would be pulled on us and we'd just be like, you better kill me. Take a shot. Like just really putting ourselves in, in harm's way at every opportunity with, with zero regard for our own safety and and to me i think that that definitely qualifies as suicidal i'm curious what was a day in the life like as a white 
nationalist skinhead <laughs> right before you became a father? And then also, what sort of interactions were you having with BIPOC, you know, people of color during that time? Because I'm sure you had to have a job and I'm sure you were right. coming across people and you had the woman in McDonald's. So right. can you take us, give us just a, an example of some of those experiences? The typical day for me would be, I, I always had a job and, and I always managed to, I, I got my first full-time job when after telling my mom I wasn't going back to school, my mom's a very practical person. And she's like, if you're not going to go back to school, you're going to get a job because we can't afford to support you. So she had a high school friend named Jack Cooper who had a t-shirt printing business. And Jack said, sure, I'll get my job. So at 16, I started printing t-shirts 40 hours a week, third shift. And, and I was really good at it. And I, and I liked doing it. It was kind of fun. And, and they're, the t-shirts we printed were all like unlicensed rock shirts. <laughs> so it was, it was cool printing shirts for bands I liked. And my mom actually did the artwork for a lot of the t-shirts, but it wasn't legal. And the place got raided every once in a while by federal marshals and after a couple of years, it got rated one too many times and it all shut down. But then I just went and got a job printing t-shirt somewhere else. So my day-to-day -day life was, was always work. Uh, I'd always be working 40 hours a week. And I'd always like show up to work either still drunk or hungover and manage to still perform well enough to keep a job and to get there on time enough to not get fired. But beyond that, I, I think the simplest way to describe day-to-day -day life is just being terrified of everything in the world. Like every person that you see is an enemy, no matter what their complexion is, because if they're white and they're not in your crew, they're a traitor. They're a traitor to your people. They're complicit in the destruction of the white race. And actually it's the highest order of enemy. because we would say like, well, you know, Jews and blacks and Mexicans, like they, they're just, being what they are, but like white people, white man should be fighting for his race. And when they're not, they're a traitor. So everyone's an enemy. Everyone who doesn't look like me is immediately an enemy. Anyone who could even be construed as looking Jewish or whatever is, is an enemy. And then anyone who's not, who's just like a normal, normal looking white guy, they're an enemy also for not being on my side. So it's just this exercise of constantly surrounding yourself with enemies. And, and it's basically like I, I use the analogy of a lens in that my eyesight is very poor. And this would be on this computer screen. I need big, thick glasses. And these lenses allow me, they correct myopia so that I can see things that are far away. Without them, I can't see anything. And I, I really believe that all human beings create their own reality through the lens that they interact with the world through. And at that time, the lens that I had crafted myself told me that the color of my skin made me different than everyone else, superior to everyone else, and at the same time, threatened by everyone else and at war with everyone else. So this is all, and again, looking back, I wasn't aware that I'm the one who created this. Looking back, I just like felt like I felt my I found myself in this reality where I have no choice but to fight for my people, otherwise we're going to be exterminated. But it was all of my own doing, and so it took a ton of energy to craft that lens in the first place, and then to keep it front and center. 
so that everything that I'm experiencing goes through the lens and nothing kind of sneaks by it. And typically at work, I would have interactions with Afro-American people, with Latino coworkers, with Asian-American coworkers. My boss, Jack Cooper, was a Jewish guy. And all of them, just about to a person, and again, there's no mistaking who I am and what I'm about. Like, I'm this gnarly-looking shaved head kid with swastikas tattooed on him and swastikas on his jackets. It's no one like, hmm, I wonder, you know, what's his deal? Like, no, it was pretty obvious what my deal was. And if it wasn't obvious, I would tell you. Anybody who wants to talk to me, we're going to talk about race. Like, any, oh, how are the Packers doing? Race. Well, they, you know, blah, blah, blah. Black guys and white guys shouldn't be on the same team. That Any topic you bring up is going to be immediately drawn to race by me. How are you getting these jobs if you're walking around with all these swastikas talking about race all the time? <laughs> I'd, I'd go in with uh, without my, ja- my swastika jacket, that's for sure. First of all, my mom got me the first job. The next job I got, I, I had my going to get a job deal where I, I you know, just wear like a plain jacket. I kind of that's a hell of a bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you're absolutely. hired. You come absolutely. in with your swastikas. Well, and I, I had experience printing t-shirts that I wasn't very good at it. I just think people like for the, the subsequent jobs, people didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Whereas nowadays, people pay a lot more attention to it than back then. But my, my coworkers were, to put it very simply, they'd never hate me back. I wanted them to hate me. And I'm always trying to like just cultivate that hatred. If I have an Afro-American coworker, I'll be like, how does it make you feel when you see a black woman with a white man? You don't like that, do you? That bothers you, don't? And, and some of these guys be like, "Yeah, it kind of does bother me, actually." <laughs> like, they're like, "Yeah, see, see, like Louis Farrakhan." You know, I, I, I want them to be separatists. I, I want them to be nationalists. And yet, even the guys who are kind of like, "Yeah, it bothers me a little bit," are we're still like, you know, look, we're all human beings. You know, the, the the color of our skin shouldn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And I that would oh, that was the worst thing you could say to me. I, oh, yes, it does. And, and I would go on a big diatribe as, as to, you know, racial, biological differences, as if there was a scientific basis to race, which there, there's not and there never has been. And that was my interaction with people who didn't look like me. And, and looking back, it, you know, not the segue to our, our next, next discussion here, but it was really like when they refused to hate me back, they were putting themselves in a position of power because my objective back then was to just cultivate hostility. I wanted mm-hmm. hate from everyone. And if, I, if you're hating me, that's all the better. Like, please hate me. I want you to hate me. And when someone said, no, I'm not going to hate you. Like, this is how a human being should treat another human being. That was defiance. That was power. And, and I liken it to... Again, yeah, I'm a big sports fan. I love American football. I love hockey. I love MMA. And, and in any kind of sporting event, anytime you're watching, you're hearing a commentator or you're hearing a coach talking, they're always talking like, we want to play our game. We want to make them play our game. Like, we're a running team. We're going to run the ball right down the middle. We're going to play our game. Well, if I was trying to play my game, my game was hate. And these people are like, no, you're, we're not playing your game. We're playing my game, which is this is how a human being acts. This is how a human being treats another human being. And in doing so, they were dictating the terms of engagement to me rather than allowing me to do that. 
And, and that's how you prevail in a conflict. That's how you accomplish an objective. The black woman at McDonald's who you took your paycheck to every week to go get your Big Mac feast. Yeah. Was she an older woman or was she around your age? No, she was, she was elderly. She really reminded me of my grandma. And I'll, I'll say my, my grandma Marge on my dad's side, this is my father's mother who was, had the misfortune to be married to Arnold II, who was, he was a mean drunk. And, and he was a, a big beast of a man. And I get a lot from him, but like one of the things I get is my voice and like his voice makes my voice now sound like a prepubescent Swedish boy. Like mm-hmm. his voice was just, and he was constantly just horrible to my grandma. And my grandma was the closest thing to a living saint that I've ever met in my life. She was just the, the, the gentlest, kindest human being ever. And a lot of times I feel like I, I failed her when I hate people and hurt people. And, and she's been gone since 2008 now, but she's always with me and my thoughts now. And, and when I, this interaction happened at McDonald's, it was an elderly woman who was probably pretty close to my, my grandma's age uh, behind the counter taking orders. And from the second I walked in there, she just had this beautiful smile and this kind of aura about her of love and, and of, of, of acceptance and love is by nature unconditional. If it's conditional, it's not love. That love she had just kind of radiated out to everybody who walked through the door of that McDonald's. And it made me very, very uncomfortable because I'm trying to hate black people. And here is this old lady, like just by her presence, defying everything that I I'm trying to be. And, and just without saying a word, with just a smile, she's, she's like driving home how wrong I am about everything, about the entire world. And ultimately, in this interaction, I would go there every Wednesday when I got paid, and I'd get a Big Mac. And the rest of the time, I ate nothing but ramen noodles, like the 10 for a dollar packs of ramen noodles, so I could have more drinking money. So I'm a gifted genius. And the one day a week, I'd eat something else. was a Big Mac at this McDonald's right by the check cashing place. And the first time I walked in and I saw her, I was kind of just struck and I just very awkwardly ordered my food and scurried out of there. The next time I came back, she recognized me. She remembered what I ordered. She's asking me about my day. And I, I, this is just like really upsetting me. And again, I, yeah, well, great, fine, sure, okay. And I get my food and I scurry out of there. And then in between that visit and the next one, had, this is back in the 700 Club days. Every night at Seven Hundred Club was a big raging party. Like Monday was a big party, but Saturday was like that times 10. And this particular Saturday, somebody's over with a homemade tattoo machine and I was already covered with them. And I had the bright idea to get a swastika on this middle finger. And that was specifically so that for that cultivation of hatred. If somebody wasn't sure if they hated me or not, I'd just go, hey, fuck you. Well, what do you think now? It, it like, I, not only am I flipping you off, but I'm flipping you off with a swastika as an exclamation point. And so I go back to McDonald's this next Wednesday and I froze in the doorway, seeing her there behind the counter. And I'm just like, I, I just had this involuntary feeling. I'm like, I don't want her to see this. Mm. I don't want her to see the swastika. I, I was ashamed of it. Like, 
no reason behind it. It was just like this deep gut feeling. I was ashamed of myself. And I'm sitting there for a minute, like wondering if anybody else works at this McDonald's and <laughs> is anybody else going to come up to the next register? And like, nope, it's just her. And I'm, I'm thinking also like, where's the next closest McDonald's? And it was a good half mile away and it was December in Wisconsin. So it was pretty cold. And I'm just like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to keep my hand in my pocket so she doesn't see this tattoo. And I, it didn't occur to me that I have to reach into my pocket to get the money out and hand her the money. And as I was doing that, she saw the swastika and she said to me in the same way, when I used to beat up my little brother, my grandma would kind of call me on it. She's just like, what is that on your finger? All I could do is stare down at my boots. And, and I was a good foot taller than her at that point. And I felt like I was six inches high. And I, mm -hmm. all you do is just say, it's nothing. I didn't say, that's a symbol of my people. You know, I didn't go into my old diatribes. I was, I was literally powerless. And she just said, I know you're a better person than that. That's not who you are. And I'm just like, can I just have my big man, please? And I, I got my food and I, 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 I ran out of there. And, and I, I always say I would love to tell people that I went like skipping out going, racism, stupid. Like, she's so nice. I'm cured. But I, I actually wolfed the big back down on the way home. And I got home and I just started pounding beer and got as drunk as I could, as fast as I could. And then I went out in the streets and I just picked a fight with the first person I saw because I was trying to put as much distance between myself and this like experience of humanity that I had just had as I possibly could. And, and I, I spent all sorts of energy trying to erase that from my psyche and just pretend like it never happens. But the human psyche doesn't work like that. Like once we experience something, it's part of us forever going forward. You can't just erase it. You can't pretend it never happened. It's, it's there good, bad, or ugly. This incident happened like in month three of my seven year involvement in white nationalism. And for that entire seven years, that kept coming up over and over and over again. Anytime I'd even see an old black lady, I'd be like, oh, well, no, yeah. I'd, I'd think of her. And, and it would cause me great discomfort in the place I was trying to be. And I, I, I really believe that was a big factor in the exhaustion that, that ultimately brought me to the point where I left in 1994. Let's cut to around that time you're picking up your daughter from daycare and you have this profound realization. That, that was actually after, after I had left. I left in 1994 and one of the most frequently asked questions I get is like, did people come after me? Was it hard mm -hmm. to leave? It felt awesome to leave. I, just like, I, I can root for the Packers openly now. I can listen to the Beastie Boys again. I can watch Seinfeld. I can watch Blade Runner. I like all these things were forbidden in white nationalism, and and just the 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 freedom to get back into the the film, sports, music, pop culture that I, I had voluntarily sequestered myself from. That was amazing, and I and it felt great. And no one came after me for a number of reasons, but the main reason was, and I, I do a lot of like corporate stuff nowadays. And when you're, you're talking with a business organization, like what's our organizational culture going to be? Like if we can make our organizational culture one where people practice kindness every day, how transformational is that going to be to our business of selling widgets? 
Like it's going to be super transformational because it gives you the power to make salty customers into advocates for you. When, when you're able to, to take all their frustration and kind of parlay it in, into something, into a connection with kindness. Well, when you think about a white nationalist organization, the organizational culture is literally hate and violence. <laughs> so like what, what practical effect does that have on the organization? Well, the practical effect is we fought each other as much as we fought anyone else. There, there was constant infighting. There were organizations that had like formal hierarchies and people are, I'm the commander and you know, give themselves little titles and stuff. And we always thought that was kind of lame and we just did things kind of organically. And we were very much like a, a wolf pack where there, there were the alphas, there were the kind of the nameless people in the middle, and then there were the people on the bottom. And, and I always was like fighting to maintain my alpha status. I'm always fighting to maintain how white I am. That was like a typical infighting tactic was to question someone's pure-blooded white Aryan Nordicness or accuse them of being gay, accuse them of being a Jew, like what have you. So all this stuff is going on. And while the group membership locally had peaked about 150 people in like 1991, by 94, it had just cannibalized itself into just, it was like me and the guys in my band and a couple of other, the older guys and all of us had young families. All of us worked like menial minimum wage jobs. We're just like struggling to face the realities of adult life and, and really getting burnt out. So that's kind of where I, I was when I left. And the impetus for leaving was I became a single parent when my girlfriend and I broke up earlier in 94. And then a couple months later, after a concert my band had played, a second friend of mine was murdered in a street fight. And by that point, I had lost count of how many friends had been incarcerated. So it really hit me that I had to leave for my daughter's sake. So when I left, it was an awesome thing. It was like hedonism. And, and I, I started going to rave parties about a year later, like the, the polar opposite of where I was, going from like extreme hate and violence to extreme peace and love counterculture. And, and I was really just enjoying the ride. But it was maybe six months or so into the, the rave era of my life. When I was attending a local community college and I had my daughter in daycare there and she was about four years old at that time. And the community college had a really awesome daycare room. Like there's big windows surrounding it and inside they had like this huge fort thing and like a little stream that went through the whole thing, like sand tables and they make sand castles. And I always wanted to go in there and play myself. And, and so I'm going to pick up my daughter one time and I, I kind of pause outside the window, just watching her play with all the other kids. And this is a really diverse group of kids, of course. And they're all just playing. They're all just having fun. And I'm just thinking like, nobody gives a shit about the color of their skin. Like all they care about it. Are you nice to them? Are you sharing with them? Are you fun to play with? It's really kind of distilled to this essence of, of, of human interaction. And I'm kind of contemplating that. And as I'm doing so, an Afro-American guy about my age shows up and he's picking up his daughter, who's about my age. And when he comes walking in the room, I'm still outside watching from the windows at this point. When he comes walking in the room, his daughter, just like my daughter does, comes running up and like, Daddy, and she jumps up into his arms and he picks her up and he's hugging her and she's all excited and, and I'm like looking at his face and I'm just thinking like, 
how could I ever think that this guy loves his daughter any less than I love my daughter or that she loves him any less than my daughter loves me because of the amount of melanin we do or don't have in our skin. And, and then I thought about all the people that I hurt. A lot of people I hurt were, were because of their complexion, because of melanin in their skin. There were times when I jumped on people and I, I beat them so badly that only their parents could recognize them. And I thought of all that that had happened. And, and then I, I asked myself, like, how, how wrong were you? Like, could you have been any more wrong than you were? And I think that was really like a big step along my journey to the point where I, I eventually, it, it took a long time, but I eventually got, had this growing feeling that like, I need to do something positive in the world. I need to do something to, to help people heal and to, to somehow bring about a world where there's less hatred and less violence. And, and not only do I need to do that, like that's the least I can do considering all the harm that I've done. Cut to 10 years later, you're campaigning for Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I was. 2008. I, I was, I'll never forget that. It, it, was, uh, it was the most politically involved I've been before or since. I do look back at that time with like a little bit of regret. I was so, and I'm still a big fan of Barack Obama. I think he was one of our greatest presidents. He did an amazing job in, in a very difficult time. But I, when, when I was campaigning for him, I was very much like, if we get Barack elected, like everything is going to be fixed. Like everything's, this will all be over. Like we'll have this wonderful place to live and like everybody will be valued and included. And it'll be so beautiful. And, and yeah, no, <laughs> and, and through no, no fault of his. And then he made mistakes. He's, he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But just the kind of the, the cold, harsh reality of human politics really sunk in during Obama's, in both of his administrations. So by 2012, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll put in a little money and I'll vote for him. But <laughs> that's, all, that's all the energy I got for it now. I, I'm, I'm not going to be knocking on doors and and, I, and I've really like kind of gotten farther and farther removed from politics since then. And honestly, I think politics have gotten uglier and uglier since then, so, somehow. But yeah, that's the sad fact. Did you find that a lot of your peers who were having these young families, were they all sort of transitioning out as well? And if so, what would the breadcrumbs of you starting to convert people out of white nationalism and into, I don't know what you would call it at that time, but how did that all start? When I was leaving and I, I kind of made it known just to a select few people. And, and it's interesting to look back that as messed up as we were as human beings back then, there were still like genuine friendship and connection mm. at times, like underneath all the, the nonsense going on. And, uh, and, and then you had on top of that, like we were in messed up situations. Like I've, I've saved guys lives and I've had guys save my lives and life in a, in a street fight. And, and it's just kind of that closeness that 
combat brings between people it, it really kind of happened between me and, and a number of my friends from back then. And so it was with those friends that I actually took the time to sit down and be like, look, dude, I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. And there was a, a, a range of responses from them. The typical response would be like, well, but, but what about the white race? And yada, 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 yada. I'm like, dude, I've said all that stuff a million times. Like I told you that stuff five years ago. Like I, I, it's, it's bullshit. It's not, it's not real. That's not how the world is. And they were kind of like, well, a little dejected. <laughs> they didn't like make too much of an effort. And I really got the feeling as I was talking to these guys, a lot of them were it, almost to a person were kind of like, uh, as they're watching me go, they're kind of like, yeah. And, and I, I just had a gut feeling that they would be along shortly thereafter. And for the most part, you know, if I, if I, when I wrote my life after hate, I actually, because I was such a drunk during that seven year span, I really needed to like clear up a lot of things. I had a lot of memories that were so hazy that I needed to be like, Hey, what the hell happened that night? Or, you know, what happened then? And so I sat down and I did about like 50 hours of interviewing with all my friends who had also got out with me. And by that time that I started writing the book in like 2007, that just about everyone I knew from back then had left white nationalism formally and like got on with their life in one way or another. Some of them like completely 180'd and became very progressive and like also voted for Obama. And, and some of them to this day think like Donald Trump's a great guy. And, and when I think about that, I'm like, well, you know, you haven't come very far, but the bottom line is that, that even those guys, one of them, comes to mind who's started a business and, and became pretty successful. And, and him and I were just talking one day and he's like, you know, I, he's like, I, I don't agree with your politics, but he's like, just, I, I hope you understand that like the, the bulk of my employees are Latino and I, I pay them. I not only pay them fairly, but like a lot of them have, have generated wealth of their own for their family because of the business that we all run together and, and just like from a that kind of right-wing business standpoint like it seemed logic my dad has uh, you know and i i thought about that and i'm like that is something you know i can't just like poo-poo that one of the guys i i was actually doing some work for him that, doing what i'm doing now is not always the most lucrative thing so there are times i'm like okay i'll go paint a house or whatever <laughs> keep the bills paid and, and i was painting for one of these guys and he had like a contracted business and he made a point out of hiring young african-american men who like needed a chance like guys who mm -hmm. just got out of prison and this is someone who's really conservative Mm -hmm. And then, you know, would was not be down with Barack Obama whatsoever, but he's, he is, he does like see this young man who like needs a job and, and he wants to, he gives him a, a decent paying job and an opportunity to make something on himself and an opportunity to advance. And so I, I it really kind of challenged me to look outside of that political lens and just start looking at that human lens and really get to the point where it's like, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned with how you treat people than what hashtags you use or don't use and who you vote for.
And not to discount the effects of who's in office, like obviously that's a huge effect on everybody's life. But I think we get way too wrapped up in that and and we lose sight of the basic goodness in our fellow human beings when we, we see everything through a political lens. When you wrote My Life After Hate, had you been doing the speaking and the converting and meeting with people, working very actively behind the scenes? Or was that kind of your first foray into this other? side of things? I started writing first. Really, the way the whole thing evolved was I I quit drinking in 2004. That was a big deal on all kinds of levels. But (laughs) as far as like my career path and my activism path goes, I spent seven years in the rave scene. And I was just as into that as I was ever in anything else. And I love it every minute of it, like having the best time, making great friends. I still love techno. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was at an all-night techno party in Brooklyn and love it. <laughs> I could barely walk afterwards, but I, mean, I, I I love that scene. I love the music, but I was still numbing myself, numbing myself with this like immersed in, in the, this this amazing hyper real counterculture, numbing myself with alcohol, numbing myself with all sorts of drugs, psychedelics, whatnot. So when I quit drinking. All of a sudden, the, the substance to numb myself isn't there. And again, it like kind of like when I left the movement, as we called it, I, I felt great. Like, this is amazing. Like, when I quit drinking, I'm like, this is amazing. Wow, like not being hungover. This is awesome. And I'm really just like loving not having my senses fuzzy 24 7. But I started a business then. I was already doing IT consulting and I, Talked to a foolish friend of mine in the backing uh, consultancy financially and, and trying to get that off the ground. And then I also met this woman who I just fell absolutely madly head over heels in love with the first second I saw her. And we hung out platonically for like a couple months. And that really made it all the deeper when we started getting romantic. And to make a very long story short, six months later, she dumps me. And I had this, like, just the worst heartbreak I'd ever experienced in my life. And, and again, there's nothing to numb it now. There's no alcohol to hide behind. And this girl's deal was, like, she was in her 30s, biological clock ticking, wants to have more kids. She's from a poor background. She wants the nice stuff in, in our nice suburb. She wants a Range Rover or the McMansion, the, the driveway to park it in. And and I'm like, I live with my mom. And <laughs> I'm like five high five figures in debt (laughs) that just like didn't work for her and and i i just really got down on myself and i'm just like you know i i'm i'm worthless like i didn't have my shit together when the woman of my dreams came along and it's really started like beating myself up for all of my what i saw as failures and 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 as as it got worse and worse and when i say it got worse and worse i mean i just i got into this like suicidal depression Mm-hmm. Where, I, again, I was just constantly thinking about killing myself. The only reason I didn't was because of my daughter. I Had I been single, had I not had a child at that point, I would have killed myself. Like, mm-hmm. and, and done it right this time, having mm-hmm. made two failed attempts before. It was so bad that I resented my daughter that she was in the way of my suicide. And, and as I was in these, this, like, depths of depression and, and really, like, the far and away the most difficult part of my life because the my whole time in the movement i was rip roaring drunk the whole time 
I don't really remember what that feels like. I have to really like dig deep to think about how it felt, but like, this is raw and real and ridiculous pain. And it hit me then that it really wasn't about this woman who broke my heart. It wasn't about the heartbreak. It was about all this harm that I had done to innocent people and harm that I had done to the world and harm that I had done to broken white kids who came to me looking for help and something to believe in. And I just got them, you know, lit their fuse and set them off in society to hurt people. And and the band that I had fronted had sold all these records and that no matter what I did, that harm was still out there and it was still reverberating and it was still hurting people. And, and I, I came to hate myself worse than I've ever hated anyone else in my life. I hated myself for a year straight, like a bitter, deep hatred. And it was finally my daughter who like grabbed me by the collar. <laughs> she, she was like 13 at this point. And she's just, my daughter and I are very raw and real with each other. And she's just like, dad, like fucking snap out of it. Like I need a dad. She was a bitch anyway. <laughs> I, I didn't like her. And I'm just like, holy shit. Okay. So like, once again, my daughter is like the big impetus to snap me out of a really bad place. And that's when I started writing. I've always been like in D and D Dungeons and Dragons, like fantasy stuff. And I'm like, I have to slay the dragon of my past <laughs> before I'm going to win the hand of the beautiful princess and ride off into the sunset. So it was 2007 or so late in 2007 when really the idea of reconciling my past came front and center. Mm-hmm. And I, and I started to do that through writing that ultimately became my life after hate and a speaking career and, and an activism career. I, I went public with my story on the MLK holiday of 2010, inspired by MLK's speech, A Time to Break the Silence, which was really more about the Vietnam War and <laughs> how our economy works than, than like, but the speech title really resonated with me and i'm like you know it is it's time for me to break the silence about about my and and i i would also add that in this interim time between 94 and 2010 i wasn't like hiding it and and there was like back in the early rave days i still had swastikas all over me and you know i'd be like whooping it up with my raver friends and then one of them would be like what the hell's up with that i'm like yeah you know i used to be a racist skinhead and i feel horrible about it and they're like, well, you're not anymore, are you? And I'm like, no. They're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, everybody was like that. Everybody was like super forgiving, super accepting of me when I when I needed it most. And, and that mm-hmm. was a huge reason that I was able to get to the point where I am now. And like a big factor in, in the direction that I took. Talk about that a little bit as we wind things down. You've mentioned that the main weapon that you use now when you're getting people out of hate groups and doing counter violence, extremist work, you say that forgiveness is the weapon. What does that actually mean as it relates to maybe even the forgiveness project? Yeah, the forgiveness project is, is an amazing thing that I, I really love to evangelize. People can find it at theforgivenessproject.com. There's a, a brilliant journalist in London named Marina Cantacazino, who I believe was around the time of the first Iraq war. She just had the idea to kind of start collecting stories of forgiveness. And 
she approached me to become a, a part of the Forgiveness Project in 2011, about a year or so after I started telling my story. And I was really intimidated by it because I, I saw the existing members of the Forgiveness Project. And there were people who would like Jill Hicks, this woman who lost both of her legs at the, at the knees in the London 772 bombing who now like talks about forgiveness as the answer to violent extremism. And, and there were people like Robbie Damelin, uh, an Israeli woman whose son David was killed by a Palestinian sniper. And when the IDF came to her door to tell her that David was dead, she said, you may not kill anyone in my son's name. Mm. And it intimidated me to the core because I'm like, I, I, if anybody looks sideways at my daughter, I want to tear their head off. Like, still, this, I'm like, Mr., you know, kind Buddhist, blah, blah, blah. But like, you look sideways at my daughter. It's, it's, I can't imagine it, like, even life continuing if someone hurt her, much less like forgiving people. And so I didn't feel worthy to be among people like Robbie and Jill. And I told Marina, I'm like, I don't even want to forgive. Nobody did anything to me. Like, I, I'm the one who did all these horrible things. And, and, Marina had heard my story. I was talking about the woman at McDonald's and Marina said, first of all, she's like, well, didn't that woman at McDonald's have to forgive you for her to treat you like that? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. And she's like, so forgiveness is part of your turnaround. Had people not forgiven you, do you think you would have been able to, to leave that life behind? And I'm like, well, no, yeah, you're right. And then she, the, the kicker was, and she said, well, what about self-forgiveness? And I was like, oh, yeah. That I got a lot to say about. That's like what that whole suicidal depression year I spent post heartbreak. Not a million years would I forgive myself. Interestingly, to, to parlay into to Buddhism and meditation, like in 2009, when I first learned to meditate, I was trying to find peace with never forgiving myself. To me, it, it seemed like I had to do something to honor the people that I hurt. And I was like, okay, to honor them, I'm never going to forgive myself for the harm that I've done. And I'm like, I'll just have to find peace with that. And, and you can't find peace with that. There is no peace when you have a grudge against yourself. And it was when I, I sat down to meditate and I'm being told to focus on my breath. And I'm focusing on my breath for a split second. And for that split second, my mind is present where I am and I'm not regretting the past or worrying about the future and then i'm hungry and all of a sudden I'm, oh, i want a double cheeseburger with the works from cops after this and oh wait that's not what i'm here to do i'm gonna let that thought go and i'm gonna return my focus to my breath and then another oh, that asshole cut me off on the way here fuck that guy okay nope that's not what i'm here to do either like let's just go back to our breath and keep returning to the breath when i i i, I like leaped off that cushion when the gong rang and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, hey, if I can work with this thought of the double cheeseburger with the works from cops and, and the guy who cut me off, if I can work with those things, I can work with this grudge against myself because they're all the same raw material. Now, granted, the grudge is, is this mountain that's got decades and decades of, of hurt that I've endured and hurt that I've put out on people, but it's still the same stuff. So if I can work with one, I can work with the other. And that's when the possibility of self-forgiveness was introduced to my life through meditation. And since then, 
what I have found peace with is that self-forgiveness will be a lifetime journey for me. Mm. It's something that I'm, I'm always going to be working with. It's something that's always going to be a part of my process. And that's, that's not only okay, that's amazing. Because, because I'm on this journey of self-forgiveness, when I am reaching out to someone who is actively in a hate group, and I'm trying to, to let them know that there's a better way to live their life, and I, I'm here to walk with them to get there, I can talk about self-forgiveness with them because I'm a practitioner of it. Rather than like, oh, you know, I'm on some top of a mountain and I'm all enlightened and I'm just like doling out all this wisdom. It's like, no, dude, I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. I'm, I'm walking with you because I'm doing this myself. Like you're just leaving now. I left 30 years ago and I'm still walking on this journey. And you know what? I'm, I'm delighted about it now. I'm like joyful. I'm, I'm grateful. And you can be there also if you just take that first step with me. So that process of being a, a practitioner is what makes me effective in doing work to counter the harm that I've done. And so when I talk about forgiveness as a weapon, that's how it manifests itself most obviously in my work today. Anytime I talk about forgiveness, I think about my dear friend, Pardeep Singh Kalika. Pardeep's father, Satwant, was murdered by a guy from the skinhead gang that I helped to start in the late 1980s. And Satwant was the last person murdered in the attack of seven people because he was fighting off the gunman with a butter knife. Because the Gurdwara, that the, the Sikh temple that morning was full of elderly people and children who were hiding in the basement. And Satwan, who was 61, was like, he was going to fight till his last breath. And he did. He was shot five times. And when the gunman was finally stopped by, by law enforcement, the gunman had butter knife wounds all over him from Satwan, like fighting tooth and nail to save his community. And Party reached out to me a couple months after the attack. It really just wanting to understand how could someone do something so horrible. And the answer to that is, is practice. Practice can get you there. Practice is the answer to how someone can do something so horrible. And practice is the answer as to what we can do about it as a society. When you practice something, you, you become it. And when you practice hate and violence every day for every waking moment of your life, you, you realize a reality that is so miserable that nothing but homicide followed by suicide seems to make sense to you. And that's what I believe happened to Wade Page, who's the man who killed Party's father. And, and as far as the, the answer to it, if we practice kindness, if we practice forgiveness, we practice compassion, we make those things, things that we embody in our day-to-day -day life, we don't know who the next suffering, damaged person is out there who's on the verge of harming a bunch of people and harming themselves. So the more kindness we put into the world, the greater the odds that we're going to have like the woman at McDonald's moment. Where this that, that little seed of doubt is injected into that person's soul, and and it, that little spark of light to guide them out of a, a very miserable place 
is introduced into their world. The odds of that happening are exponentially greater with every person who practices kindness. And when I think of forgiveness, I think of party because party said that to him, forgiveness is vengeance. Forgiveness is his vengeance against the man who murdered his dad and murdered six other people because they wore turbans, because they had dark skin, because they had beards, because they didn't look like him. And Pardeep and I do a lot of talks, and, and we, we've known each other going on 10 years now, and we're absolutely brothers in every sense of the word, and I've learned so much from him. And the first talk where Pardeep said, forgiveness is vengeance, during a Q&A, someone in the audience like looks up vengeance on their phone, like the dictionary definition of vengeance, and they read it. And they're like, can you still say that forgiveness is vengeance? I answered. I'm like, dude, the guy who killed Pardeep's dad wanted to live in Pardeep's head and his heart for the rest of his life. He wanted to, to hijack Pardeep's time and energy from that point forward constantly looking back at that this atrocity and constantly being consumed with anger and hatred towards him like i the guy's dead but i can tell you with all the faith that i have that that was his motivation because i was in that place and that's how yeah. i acted and party just by saying i forgive you is taking back all of that power he's taking back all of that time and energy i party gets asked all the time People will say like, well, how come it's always the brown people who got to forgive? How come it's always the black people who got to forgive? And I can understand how it can seem like that. Absolutely. But I, the, the truth is, if you look at the Forgiveness Project, there are people of every background forgiving every way from this complexion to that complexion. And, and there really isn't a racial component to it. But party will say like, to me, it's an honor to be in that position to make that kind of statement for my community, for Sikhs, for Punjabis, for South Asian people. He's the type of guy who does believe in destiny. And it's like, this is my destiny, is that I, I need to lovingly challenge people out of their insular reaction to hate and to say, like, you know, don't let hate win. Pardeep has a beautiful wife. His mom's still around his widowed mother. He has four amazing kids. He is a mental health professional. He works for Parents for Peace, intervening in, in violent extremism as a licensed therapist. And if he's expending energy, energy hating the guy who killed his dad, it's energy that all of that doesn't get. It's energy that's not available for those people. I'm a former information technology consultant. You know, when like a computer gets a virus, the computer has a central processing unit, it's the chip, the, the brain of the computer that does all the work on your computer screen. What a virus will do is it'll suck all the power of that CPU. So it's using all your CPU power and you don't have anything left to do Zoom conference or a web page or word processing or whatever. That, that's what, what hatred does, is it sucks up all of the energy you have in your life to do amazing things. It sucks up all the energy you have to love. And to me, I can't think of anything more vengeful than saying, you don't get that. Not hmm. going to do it. This is my energy. And I, I choose where it's directed. I choose to direct it towards love. And you can't stop me from doing that. Nothing you can do can stop me from doing that. That's defiance. That's vengeance. 
to me, like forgiveness is such a powerful thing and it's so underrated in that sense. But at the same time, it, it, and this is kind of Forgiveness Project 101, just about every single member of the Forgiveness Project, and there's hundreds of stories of forgiveness. Party has his own story in there. I believe Dedeen or Uyan, our mutual friend, I, I've introduced her to Marina. I'm not sure if she's like officially part of it now, but all these wildly differing stories of forgiveness and, and differing opinions on it also. Like not everybody thinks the same way about forgiveness, but the one thing that pretty much everyone agrees upon is that forgiveness cannot be prescribed. You can never look at someone who's been traumatized and be like, you should forgive. That's what you need to do. That's out of line. And it's out of line because it doesn't work that way. For Forgiveness needs to be like a journey that's willingly taken. And while I would never say to someone, you need to forgive, I can say, I can talk, tell stories of forgiveness from my perspective and everything I've learned about it. And just kind of leave that out there for people to, to contemplate. And if after doing so, they think, well, maybe I, I will forgive this person. And I, it actually reminds me, I was in London once, and the Forgiveness Project has a really amazing exhibit that travels around, and it's got some great photography and the stories there. And it was at the OXO Gallery on the Thames, and, and I was like on the way there to do a little event. And I was walking in and this guy comes up to me and he's like, oh my God, you're him. And I'm like, oh no, come on, man. Like, don't do that. And he's like, no, Arnold, like I read your story. And like it really like resounded with me. And, and, and tears start coming up. And he's like, because I read your story, I was able to forgive someone who hurt me. And, and ever since I have, like my life has gotten so much better. And he's like, I just want you to know how, how much that means to me. And I'm just like, like, that's awesome, dude. I mean, I'm glad I could help with that. But like, you know, I'm one of a billion stories here. I'm, I'm glad you, mine resonated with you. But I'm like, go tell your own forgiveness story now. You know, go practice this and go like put it out in the world. And like, you know better than anyone how powerful it can be to hear a story of forgiveness. So like, go, go for it, man. Here's Marina. <laughs> talk to tell her your story like let's let's all get it out there and and that's that's the power that it has it, it can be just magnificently transformational for a, a human life you brought up destiny again and the reason i like to contemplate that question with with certain people who've had these life experiences that you know i don't think anybody would necessarily sign up for right but right. if i if we pan back and i'm divine intelligence. And I'm thinking, okay, let's see, how can I, there's a lot of hate happening on this plane of existence. Right. We need someone to be an example of what it's like to transform. Oh, there's this soul here. You know, we can put him in this family with this father and this bloodline. They live a very long time. We'll give him these really sketchy experiences in his early <laughs> years, but then but then he'll, he'll transform. Oh, we'll give him a daughter. Let's bring England into the picture, <laughs> right. you know? And then this black lady, this elderly black lady, clearly she doesn't want to have to work at McDonald's right, you know, right. in her, in her senior year. So maybe right. her whole family, there's all this drama happening in her background. Like, you know, mama's got to work at McDonald's. I can't believe this, you know, we should have done better, but right. because she was there and you were there. And I mean, it, when you really look, when you look back, as Steve Jobs says, in hindsight, look at the dots and how they right. all connect. It's yeah, kind of uh, kind of hard to deny that there wasn't some sort of 
divine something happening there because you're just getting started, man. You've been out of that game for 30 years and now you've been you've been focused on this other getting people out of the hate groups and helping all of us to understand that hate is really like a cancer. And so it's not the people that are stricken with hate that we should be upset with or see as the enemy. We should see hate itself as the enemy. Absolutely. And that's this is this is very powerful work you've been doing so prolifically over these last couple of decades. So anyway, I just want to acknowledge you for showing up in the way that you've been showing up and the fact that you don't have a perfect past and maybe you haven't forgiven yourself could be the internal motivation for continuing to do the work you're doing with such determination and and persistence and, and willingness. And so maybe that's also by design as well. So yeah, thanks for, for doing everything you're doing right now. And well, uh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate everything you're doing. And again, it's, I'm sure you get plays on your name all the time, but it, you know, it's <laughs> shining your light on the world is really something that the, the most deaf song comes to mind. But, uh, <laughs> I, 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 that song. I really think it's something we need to cultivate in society and just let everyone know that they have a light to shine also. And it's not all about, you know, living your best life. <laughs> you know, like how many likes I got. It's, it's about holding the door for people and smiling at someone when you're out at the shops and, and just letting somebody ahead of you when you're driving. Like it's simple little things. Every one of those add up. And mm. I, I don't think there's any act of kindness that's innocuous. I think every act of kindness like literally has the, the potential to change the world. And it's funny that you you put things that way because I've done a ton of work with school kids. Middle school is kind of like the bread and butter. A lot of high school too, some in elementary school. But an exercise I've done is I would tell that McDonald's story and then we'd all kind of just like riff on it. And I'd ask like the kids like, how do you think that woman got to a point in her life to where she was the type of person who could see someone who's basically saying, I hate you. Mm-hmm. And instead of hating them back said, you're a better person than that. And then we'd like get in. She's like, well, maybe, you know, something really bad happened to her when she was younger and, or maybe she was in a really bad place and someone, you know, just kind of exploring all the possibilities that, that could have led to her being who she was. And at that point in time, where she was when her and I had that interaction and then talking about from that point forward. So even if we're just talking about everything that could have happened before it, what, it, what did and what could have happened afterwards. Hmm. So like, because I left, that means that I'm not dead or in prison. It means that my daughter still has a father. It means that my mom and dad still have their oldest son. And that, how does that affect all of them and everybody that they would have interacted with? If we say that I'm going on next year will be my 12th anniversary of my life after hate era. If we could say that I helped one person make a better decision in their life and get out of a hate group or not join it in the first place, who didn't they attack? What jail cell wasn't full? What grave wasn't filled? And and think about all the people involved with each of those lives 
and and what happened so very quickly and, and this is all like logically you can you can show how an act of kindness literally changed the world and that's why I, I think we should never underestimate the power of it and just really all become practitioners as best we can beautiful i think that's a very perfect place to close this conversation <laughs> right on. look man i look forward to seeing you in person at some point soon. i cannot wait well you're in mexico city now I'm in Mexico City right now. Yeah, I, have you been? I've never been to Mexico City. I, I've been to Puerto Vallarta twice, and Mazatlan once, and TJ once. And uh, I don't well, come down. Take a weekend Mexico's trip. Mexico's a big place, but take yeah, a weekend I, trip, and I'll, 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 I'll show you around. Right on, man. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be fantastic. We'll keep in touch. Cool. All right, sir. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Arno Michaelis. To get more information about Arno, I suggest following him on social media at Arno Michaelis. So that's A-R-N-O-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-I-S. And his books, My Life After Hate, which came out in 2012, and The Gift of Our Wounds are both available everywhere books are sold. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you will see a couple of things. You will see that I have my book, Knowing Where to Look, available in all versions, including audio, which is read by yours truly, and it comes with bonus commentary. I'm a huge audiobook fan, so I made sure to put some extra special effort into making it a really amazing experience for the listener. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the 108-day meditation challenge. And I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to share these conversations. And it only takes 10 seconds to rate it. Just look at your screen on the Apple podcast app. Click the name of this podcast at the end of the tunnel. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see five blank stars. Just click the one on the far right and you've left a rating. Thank you so much in advance for that. And make sure you are subscribed so you're notified about the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then... As always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and please, please keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.